0: Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and I have today as someone I've been trying to get for a while. I had to buy him lunch. Like, I mean, it wasn't quite worth it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've chased this guy for. No, it's uh, always a delight to talk to uh, Robert Fine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to finally be here. <laughs> uh, so, Robert, you've got a new enterprise, but just just give people a little bit of background of where you were. And then uh, what landed you in the immigration services line of work? Sure. So I ran the Central Okanagan Economic Development Commission
1: um, from, do I dare say, 1998 until 2015. And uh, at that point, I then joined the City of Kelowna to do a little bit of economic development. And then I established something called the Partnership Office, which was... Uh, designed to create uh, new ways for the city to sort of do business, to be more entrepreneurial and look at new partnership opportunities and to try and sort of uh, innovate local government. And then I
0: retired uh, just about two years ago. So you obviously had your eye on what was the horizon. Um, Was immigration always, if I recall, you always seem to be in that space in some regard because economic development, immigration kind of go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. So we go back to 2005 and, you know, economic development was traditionally about smokestack chasing. That was the sort of the, the, the dirty name it got that you're just trying to bring big industries in to try to create employment. And certainly there was some truth of that, but after doing, uh, after sort of being at it for, for six or seven years, took a look at the demographics and realized that we had some serious challenges, uh, both currently and more importantly, looking to the future. So Kelowna at the time, yikes, was the oldest census city in Canada in 2006, meaning that we had the largest proportion of people over 65. So when you're trying to build a a vibrant economic community, you need to have labor force and you need to have have young labor force in many cases that are going to be in that workforce for a long period of time. So that was sort of the first little bell, a little warning. And started to, you know, started to look at the other countries that had had sort of seen this happen, looked at the age structures, looked at comparisons between housing costs and fertility rates, took all this sort of thing. And basically it's like we might have what we call the winter demographic, meaning that it's going to be cold and dreary here for a long time if we don't sort of try and at least like some steps to address it. So that was kind of the beginning. And we, so we we decided, uh, working with a lot of, of local business owners here who were starting to, to sort of see those uh, somewhat problematic labor shortages. Let's see if we can find, attract people here. And so the first step was sort of attracting other Canadians here. So we we ran a number of different campaigns, uh, Vancouver and Toronto and larger Canadian cities, promoted the tech industry early out of the gate with the Silicon Vineyard brand and tried to to position Kelowna as not just a vacation place, but a place you could actually come and work, have a life and a career here at the same time. So, um, but that, when that 2006 census, we got those results uh, in 2007, that was like, oh my goodness, we had no idea. Like, we do have a serious, serious challenge. So, we began to look abroad. And the reason we did that was that, uh, you know, cost of living was increasing a little bit here relative to uh, housing costs in other places in Canada, certainly nothing like it is today. Um, But more importantly, that we had something really attractive to sell to people. Um, So, we kind of targeted the United Kingdom and uh, France to some extent, Germany, Holland. Holland in the UK, most people speak English. Uh, if you looked at the value of the euro versus the Canadian dollar, like, and the pound, I think back then, a a British pound would get you $2.72 Canadian, which, uh, different yeah. story <laughs> post-Brexit now, but... Um, so, if, you know, if you owned a house, which was probably rather inflated in the, the London, Greater London era, or even in cities like Manchester or Birmingham... Um, you start converting your dollars out when you sell that house. It's like okay, I've got I've got a significant pot of money to come to Canada with in terms of my relative buying power. So we we began to work with uh, small businesses, uh, primarily in the construction industry to start with. Um, as you recall, the big boom from 2005 to 2008, when we we like the rest of the world was on a building binge, and mm-hmm. as a result of that, um, we had projects that were stalled we had um certainly the food sector restaurants stuff you're seeing exactly today which is because i know i said i don't think i'm ever going to see this again well i'm not too smart obviously (laughs) because here it is so we uh, we then began doing more of these programs we partnered with the provincial government uh, through their uh, provincial nomination program unit we partnered with the federal government with the uh, um, embassy in paris and with the uk high commission in london um, we encouraged young people to come here on working holiday visas, the hope that they would then work here, maybe look for an opportunity to stay here. And then shortly, somewhere in that period, we, uh, we hired an immigration consultant, uh, an amazing guy by the name of Woody Cross. And Woody had been the, I think his last posting was he was the economic, uh, he was the manager of the Singapore immigration office for Canada. Um, in his previous life, he was in, an enforcement officer in Kelowna removing people that shouldn't be in the in this and I, I can't share most of those stories by the way uh, so we brought Woody on board we, we put out a call to an immigration consultant to work part-time for us um, we didn't and then literally at 3:59 p.m on the fax machine um, his his CV came in and we were thrilled and he built an amazing program. so what Woody did he went and talked to uh, employers, about how to hire foreign workers, how to keep the, the foreign workers they currently had. He worked with the people that were interested in coming into the region in terms of how they might stay here. He did a lot of work with UBCO and with uh, Okanong College in terms of how students can stay after they graduate. And um, over the years, for the next probably eight years, probably what he I would say was single-handedly responsible for about 2,000 people becoming permanent here. And having a government organization that actually provided those services free of charge to employers uh, to give them some guidance what he didn't fill out their paperwork and didn't do any of the the technical stuff he simply provided advice and strategies to them to make decisions so that program became a big part of what we did over the years and um, we brought in entrepreneurial investors we brought in uh, um a number of skilled workers uh, later on more tech workers in here from other places there's some business people in town who we met literally on the road i talk about geo beans when uh uh uh, lucy and geo we met them in the uk they came to canada we kind of gave them a tour figured out what their fit might look for the community and then woody worked with them extensively to help them make their move and they came in on on an entrepreneur stream and of course they're they've now been here they're canadian citizens now so i mean they're they're It was such gratifying work and um, to be able to be to see like how we could change people's lives. Um, We had a Jamaican initiative when the bridge was being built. We had all sorts of shortages with uh, with skilled workers, so uh, with the college and with the Jamaican government and their training institution uh, called HART, we partnered to um, bring a large number of Jamaican students to get upskilled at Okanong College and then keep them here for for jobs. And you probably see more than a few Jamaicans in Kelowna now And that uh, You do actually. Yeah, and yeah. the legacy goes back to 2007, eight when the, the program was gone. So I found it really, really amazing work. It certainly kept me charged and going over all the years. And um, so when I was kind of looking at my retirement path, um, I said, hmm, I I really like that immigration stuff. So I looked into it, and uh, my timing was good because it was not as involved a the process as it is now. So there were a number of colleges and universities where you could get the uh, training in order to be eligible to write the uh, licensing exam. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, 2020, that cha- Queen's University now is the only place in Canada that you can get that. And it's a two-year program versus mine was just under a year. So I might not have been as, as inspired if it had been two years <laughs> and a little more time and involvement. Uh, so uh, did the course, uh, passed, and then wrote my exam uh, just before COVID hit in February <laughs> of 2020. And then my license arrived in October when it was all said and done. Yeah, so it's been a fun path.
0: So funny story about Gio Bean. I, I came in there one day and uh, I asked for a macchiato. And I said, and I was going, but I said, can I get that in a to-go cup? And he looked at me and tilted his head and I could see the furrowed brow. <laughs> and, and just then a, a woman helping said, oh uh don't worry uh it, it's just because we don't have any of the little porcelain cups available for the macchiato and he says oh you knew that though right like you would never order a macchiato in a to-go cup and then i said yeah, of course like i would never and he goes <laughs> okay okay so I, I stand down like it was just a funny passionate moment with with somebody who passion just goes through everything he does so i just a funny story yeah about, and he Jim. you know
1: uh, when he came to cologne the first time uh, so Corey griffiths who uh, still is the she's the director of economic development and corporate services at the region now so Corey basically spent the day with him and he wanted to see every coffee shop he wanted to visit and drink as much coffee because he wanted to make sure that uh what was he competing against so they ran around and um uh, I think 3.30 in the afternoon, Corey's back at her desk, and she's kind of slumped over. And I'm, I'm like, are you all right? She goes, no, I'm not all right. I, I had nine cups of coffee. I don't drink coffee. She goes, I feel like crying. I, and we, we sent her home, needless to say. But um, he, was, uh, he was so committed to it and said, I can do something different here. And obviously,
0: based on his success, he did. Yeah, I know. Uh, I didn't know that backstory of how he came into being, but... I mean, we're going to dive into the immigration side, but it it seems like that 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 would be a huge sense of accomplishment to to bring that amount of talent into Kelowna and just be able to provide that to Kelowna, like. I, I mean, that's a part of Kelowna legacy. Like, I mean, he uh, he provides a great cup of coffee, employs people, tax base, all that kind of stuff. So it just it, huge, yeah. huge uh, win, I guess. Well, I think the um, it's I think just the, seeing bumping into people all the
1: time that you've had some connection with um, over the way, and and it, it it doesn't happen as frequently now, but certainly you know out of the blue in the grocery store, someone taps you on the shoulder and asks you, Are "You Robert? Fine? You're like." Maybe, <laughs> and uh, and then you find out that oh, I met you at a an event in uh, Toronto five years ago, or I met you in in, in Newcastle uh, in 2012, and we moved here. And people that you don't necessarily, I'm not going. They don't have to check in with me when they when they move here, become um, <laughs> get their permits or become a permanent <laughs> resident. So that part was always just really gratifying. And I think you know, it, um, and it, it 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 does not suggest that it's easy. People that will uplift their lives and families and mm-hmm. move from one country to another, it's a huge undertaking. And I think when I look back on the early days, of ne- that didn't really register with me in terms of like, oh, sure, just pick up and come here. We'll, you know, you're going to have a great time. When you get a chance. Yeah, but it's uh, it's so involved. So people that come here, make those sacrifices, um, not only contribute significantly when they get here, but also enjoy life in a different way. It's That's an amazing thing.
0: So there's so much I want to chat about. One of them is the fact that we're going through a skilled labor shortage. Um I was at uh, I was playing Beer League hockey last night, not very well. And and uh, anyway, they were talking about somebody had just flown through Pearson Airport. Now, if, if there ever was an epitome of of labor shortage, mm-hmm. skilled labor shortage, Pearson Airport is probably and we had Sam Samadar on uh, last week, and he was talk chat, chatting about not trying to throw Pearson under the bus, but or under the airplane. He was he was more or less saying, yeah, it is uh, not great, and and they're currently being ranked. I, I haven't seen the survey. Worst airport in the world. Yeah, right now. they have seen that too. Yes. So I, I'm just wondering, and, and a lot of people are asking this question: Is why are how did we get here? And and I'm I'm suggesting, without any basis of fact, that over. Closing the doors of immigration for a few years for COVID, that has exacerbated our problem. Uh, you probably have some other ideas around why we have a skilled labor shortage. Because a jewelry store owner yesterday said, where did the people go? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's
1: certainly complex. On the immigration side, Canada actually performed better than any country in terms of actually bringing immigrants and keeping immigrants in the country during the COVID period, because, you know, most really? places shut down. Yeah. So so Canada did a couple of unique things. So there's a program called Express Entry, which basically um, provides a couple of different streams in order to become a permanent resident in Canada. And there's a there's a skilled worker stream, and there's something called the Canadian Experience Class. And the CEC, the Canadian Experience Class, means if you have a year of work experience in Canada, you can apply under that stream to become a permanent resident. You can either be in Canada working, or you can be not in Canada. So the program itself um, is based on points. They're all points-based systems. And, and typically during, during pre-COVID times, the draws for about 440 points is what you would need. And you get points from your education, your language skills. Um, if you have a spouse, you get post points for that. Your age is a big one. That's the biggest one because Canada's trying to wants to attract working age people. Right. Um, so you get enough points, you get into the pool, they do draws. Typically every two three weeks, and they go okay. That today we're drawing for the Canadian Experience Class. You need 430 points. So if you have 430 points in that, they will go through their whoever's in the system, and they will pull, give them invitations to apply for permanent residency. And they will that happens typically within six months. So that's pretty good. So just to point out how Canada was being very strategic during COVID, they did a CEC draw, and um, the points required was 79. Really, it's meaning that if you're in Canada and you've got your CEC, you're gonna you're, we're we're letting you come in and become a permanent resident. So, uh, twenty seven thousand, I think they processed through that program just just with that one draw. So, Canada did people have come and they've continued. Um, I think the the expectation for twenty twenty two is that we'll have four hundred twenty two thousand new 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 immigrants coming in through the system, um, and the looks like the numbers were just under 300,000 during the first year post-COVID. So it's pretty, I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about how well we did. So that's certainly, like, that has helped buffer. But where, the, the bigger question is where have all the people gone? And there's a couple of explanations. Some of it is... Uh, people took a look at their lives during COVID and said, I really didn't like the job I was doing. I am not going back to it. And there's some numbers. I haven't seen Canadian numbers, but there's American numbers that show that in an average year, they have about 9% turnover in the labor force in terms of people switching jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, post-COVID was 21%. So that does point to that there's a lot more mobility within the labor market. Um, You've got people that were in COVID related work. So let's say they are hospital or healthcare workers that are so burnt out and fed up, they don't wanna do that anymore. You've got folks that were working in jobs that were impacted by COVID, the tourism and hospitality sector with restaurants that were closed, uh, hotels, uh, everything related to, to travel. Who just decided I want a different career? I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, you had airlines that laid off massive quantities of people. Um, Air Canada didn't lay off that many. WestJet pretty much cleaned house during during it, and so they're now trying to hire people back now that the travel industry. And I think the uh, they didn't this sort of build up in demand has been somewhat un, uh, undetermined and not well defined by those companies. So as a result, they weren't really prepared. Um, airports like all these. Uh, all those great people that work in security there, and and uh, you need a security clearance to work at an airport. Well, guess what? The people that do the security clearances, they don't have as many of them anymore either. So it just sets off this whole cycle, and I think that that's part of it. People have just been looking at work in a much different way post COVID, and um, you know certainly the impact of having federal benefits that paid for such a significant period of time. Uh, that's had, an, and people have gone back to school. Like school enrollment and admissions are up as well. So. It's a, I don't know the actual answer to what's
0: happening, but clearly it's creating massive strains, not only here in the Okanagan, but throughout the country. So you talk about that, that strain, and, and I can see the upheaval, and I can see how people are transitioning, senior experienced people. And, and once they leave a position, I mean, people coming up don't have that mentorship. There's, a, there's going to be a gap in service certainly seeing that in the airlines and, and unprecedented demand and people jumping back on travel and that kind of thing. But what I find interesting is, is what, yeah, what you said about the reflection people had, like people had this moment of reflection going, is my job meaningful to me? Is my life, to, does that purpose? And now I'm going to move away from that, maybe go back to school and get something that I want. So, that could be one of the biggest strains on our on our workforce is just this this massive reflection that people had, and that's created this again. I'd say uh, we're probably in it for the next year. Yeah, and you know, I think you know,
1: from a personal perspective, I I was I worked through the early days of COVID with the city, and um, I decided it was time. This is a good time to retire, and that was that was just part of that sort of. I I had my own sort of window when I could do it when I wanted to do it so part of it was having a plan as to what are you going to do when you retire and I had worked on that at least a little bit but the bigger question was like um this is it just it, it for me I'm I need to be around people in the workforce so you know having you know coming into work when we had limited numbers allowed in the building and how you were it just it wasn't a great thing it wasn't a great time so yeah I took a look at things I'm sure people are doing that as well and you know the age here in the Okanagan. This is we're the I think the fourth oldest census city now. So you've got a lot of people retiring, and the city, for example. I mean, I you'd come in. There's always a big picture of someone on the on the parking lot door about their party coming out. I had more cake in, the, in my in my last two years at the <laughs> yeah. city than my entire life. Um, so that's had a big impact on on change. And I think as people get a little bit older and are more senior in their careers, yeah. I mean.
0: They're, they're looking at things a little bit differently and I'm sure the ranks of consultants are going to continue to grow as a result of that as well. I would imagine too, when real estate prices spiked, that's another indicator that I'm going to cash out and I'm going to take that money. And I, I heard about this anecdotally of people moving back to places in Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, where they have roots there and, you know, they're in their sixties and their seventies and they just want to go back to their roots and, and really live, uh, I guess a less expensive life, Um, is that, I guess that's the other question I have is around the housing. You work in the immigration sector now. This has got to be a bit of a challenge going forward to, you know, you find someone, then you process them and you get them placed. And all of a sudden, where are they going to live? Is is that, that, that's going to be a big part of this, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think the, uh, you know, the whole, the housing issue is, is uh, has become a, a big driver as to why uh, certainly a number of businesses do not want to look at hiring a, a foreign national because they, they have some responsibilities. In different programs, they have different responsibilities. And it's cost. It's trying to attract people here. And I think that, um, so we've had this influx of people from Toronto and Vancouver that have sold their houses and and bought here because those markets are crazier than here, and You know, you look at an average house in Toronto at 1.4 million versus in Kelowna at a million, well, they're not the same house. The average house in Toronto is much smaller. Uh, Depending on your location, it's going to be significantly smaller. In Colonia, you're going to get more products. So so this has become a a very attractive place to live, climate, all the usual stuff we talk about. So they're moving here. So that keeps the pricing up. And people, this is a desirable place. So housing prices are off the chart. Silly for people that are looking. Um, And that does deter. So if you are bringing in a foreign national under something called the labor market impact assessment, and it's a considered a low wage and low wages means that it is below the provincial median and what do you think the provincial median in BC is right now oof 20 probably 19 20 it's 26 and change.
0: oh my yeah. gosh so that's okay. the
1: median so if you're you want to hire somebody for less than that um, there's some obligations and one of the obligations is you have to you have to ensure that there is housing for them and they're not paying more than 35% of their income on housing so that's an added burden for you. Um, if you're even bringing them in on a high wage, when you don't have to do that, like that's going to be a question. Well, where can I live? And that is seriously challenging. And I think that the um, you think about the, the the responsibility as a business owner, and you think about the challenge for for and um, someone making that leap across countries and water in many cases to come here to work. Um, and they take a look at they pull up okay well let's see what i can rent before i come and they see there's not a lot of product it's expensive mm-hmm. they look at their wages um that's ha- has a huge impact without question and i think that the the great unknown in all of this is about you know what do we do about housing affordability the immigration minister uh, jokes about all the time that he sits next to the housing minister in in the parliament and sean fraser's the immigration minister he goes yeah i talked to my colleague all the time ago um, we need more housing. We need more housing. Uh, I, we can't bring all these people in without more housing. And, and the, the housing minister says we need more people to build housing, and that, then we'll have houses. Like they have this back and forth. as a sort of a running gag. Well, the reality is, is it is a crucial part of the, the, the puzzle, and uh, that goes for not only just for f- attracting foreign labor, it's for domestic labor as well. Um, you know, trying to bring someone in here is very challenging when the, you're paying them fifteen bucks an
0: hour. Okay, so you're you're a smart guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and you've been in the community for a long time and, and obviously uh, city economic development, you know, you've done, you've, you've done some things in your eyes, do we have uh, a way forward for affordable housing? That is, again, it, it'll be, it'll be a partnership between federal, provincial, municipal, and, and, and maybe some partnerships in regards to developers and, and, you know we we need that. but in in your eyes, is there is there a way forward that you see that is uh, feasible and And do you think this this could be another way for us to address this housing crisis? Yeah, certainly far smarter people than
1: me to talk about housing. Um, I think that the uh, the reality is the city's trying to do a bunch of stuff already to make it easier to create more housing units. So obviously the density aspect where you're building up and, and creating smaller living spaces, um, allowing people to build carriage homes on properties that will eventually uh, become rental, um, hopefully rental properties as well. Um, You can argue the provincial policy around the spec tax works or doesn't work, but it's at least an effort to try and and, uh, uh, ensure that that we we don't have houses sitting empty and vacant in large quantities for speculative purposes. looking at zoning changes to allow to for more at rental but you the last your your last comment about and the development Community they absolutely have to be involved in this like government is not going to fix this not going to no. fix this on their own no. no way can't throw enough money time or energy at it and uh and it is a provincial and federal responsibility it's not a city responsibility but we bear the impacts as, as the last customer in line there so yeah how do you so how do you encourage the private sector to uh to build more affordable housing units and and we can get into all the affordable versus attainable versus, you know, if you're earning $50,000 a year, you might find it still very difficult to live here, uh, versus if you're, you're, uh, uh, you are you're have disabilities or you have some mental health challenges and you can't find housing. Uh, that's a different issue altogether. So I think we tend to lump it into one big pot. I think that housing attainability
0: issue is the one that we need to have more discussions around. So there's a whole bunch of subjects we're going to cover here today, but the one I, I do want to keep on the immigration, uh, just because I, I find it fascinating that so many, and, and I have a, I have a marketing agency that has clients and they have needs and, and a lot of them, I, it feels like in this community in Kelowna, especially you could drop as Ralph Klein famously said, uh, but you could drop 10,000 people and they'd all have jobs tomorrow. Like it, it feels like that. Um, so what, what kind of process is somebody listening to this goes, Hey, I'd love to get someone working in my kitchen or I'd love, you know, whatever it is at the granite countertops and cutting and how, what is the next steps for them and how do they get prepared? Cause there's probably a preparation they need to do to, to make sure that that is going to be a, you know, a it's going to be possible for them to actually get someone from overseas or wherever. Um, so what are the next steps for them? Just kind of take us through what that would look like. Yeah,
1: so there's lots of there's lots of very good uh, sources of information, both on the uh, IRCC, which is Immigration Refugees, Refuge Citizenship Canada site. Uh, Welcome BC, the provincial government runs a really great uh, platform because the province does have immigration slots that the federal government, in effect, has given them to fill. Well, the feds make the decision, but the province gets to appoint and nominate. Um, so there's there's lots of information out there in terms of uh, processes. Um, the two things that typically come up with employers that, that contact me, the first question is, well, how do I even find a worker? So I want to bring a worker. Like, I I clearly can't meet meets domestically. I've run a job ad for three months. I've had no applicants or they don't show up once I hire them. So how how do I deal with this? So where do I find a worker? So that's one issue in terms of, uh, and there are recruitment agencies that work overseas. Make sure they're licensed. Make sure that they are permitted to work. Uh, It is illegal as an employer in, in British Columbia to, first of all, not register yourself if you're hiring a foreign worker, but also you cannot hire a foreign national to work for you from a recruiter who is not licensed in British Columbia to do so. So you got to make sure that's all credible. And there's some agencies out there that certainly do that kind of work. Um, um, the other opportunity for sourcing is depending on the skill level. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the Canadian embassy in France. They do uh, this incredible event called Destination Canada every year. So they invite the 5000 roughly young people that have applied through something called the International Experience Canada program working holiday visa uh, which gives <laughs> them gives them a couple of years in Canada work uh, it's an open work permit so they will organize job fairs in the in the November of every year which is a way for you as a Canadian employer You've got a job. You're in British Columbia. You want to hire somebody who's coming here. You don't have to do all the paperwork to get permission because they already have their little, their uh, open work permit in place. So you go to France, post the job. Some people travel to the show and work the shows. A lot of hospitality organizations have done that over the years. And for the person, the young person from 18 to, I think it's 33 in France that gets one of these permits, they can... Come with a job. How great is that? You know where you're going in Canada, and you know what your job's going to look like. So that that's an interesting recruitment tool. And let's say that person works for you for a year, and then you then they have some options in terms of applying for other ways to stay in Canada. Okay. Um, so that's that's an interesting stream. Um, the uh, there are a number of of. Uh, international students here in at UBC, for example, it's uh, I think close to 2,000 now international students, um, some of whom would love to stay after they graduate. And if they're in a program that you're looking at, why not why not approach the university and say, uh, you've got a job that might be of interest and work with their their uh, international st- um, students group there? I mean, so th- that's an interesting way. So that recruitment piece has got to be part of the conversation, trying to figure out how do I find somebody. Um, the second part is, um, how do I bring them here? And that's where a conversation with an immigration consultant is great. Um, I'm happy to do a quick chat with anybody just about their program needs. If it gets more strategic, then we got to get into, it's only appropriate to make sure that I'm understanding all of it. So to do a full consultation, so I know all the moving parts and come up with a strategy. And whether it's bringing someone in uh, as a, a temporary worker through uh, an, a labor market, maybe there's a way to exempt them from a labor market opinion. And for example, if uh, you have a, an employee, someone you want to hire that, uh, that, I had a company that I was working with who had a, a woman in the UK who happens to be fluent in French? Well, guess what? If you are fluent in French, there's an international mobility program for francophone speakers that allows the employer, if it's a skilled occupation, mm-hmm. to with to literally not have to do a labor market opinion to basically get themselves registered, um, apply. Uh, basically, the employee, the future employee, would apply through the uh, embassy in Paris, and um, their work permit gets processed, and they come to Canada. Pretty simple. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it, it's step a lot of steps missing from what you would traditionally have to do. So there are some programs in there, depending on on the skill level, um, salary level, who you're trying to hire, and how that can can work to make things happen. Yeah, that young lady was um, was an aviation company, and she. she- she was fluent even though she lived in the UK and British citizen so she had to, they they made her do a language test which makes sense right you want to make sure she's telling the truth
0: now i've heard there's there's france french and then there's quebec french and i've heard that yeah, Quebecois versus yeah,
1: yeah. Um, at the core, it's still the same language. It's how it's spoken. Um, so basically, if you're from a French, like you're from Algeria or um, Tunisia, like French-speaking countries, mm-hmm. uh, the, the feds will likely not even ask you to do a language test. Uh,
0: really?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, hmm. uh, you might have to do an English test if the employer. But generally speaking, it's it's a great program, and nobody uses it. Like so few people use it.
0: Yeah. Um okay uh, three two one okay so a lot of people in you know they're they're listening to this they like what they hear but again, there's cost there's cost associated with that and and I don't want to put you into a box here but uh, is is there a range that somebody could look at because I have a friend in in Lethbridge Alberta runs a pub. He's brought in uh, people from Ecuador to work in his kitchens because he cannot get Canadians to apply to be, you know, prep kitchen or anything. So he he's had a lot of experience and success with that. And for him, it was about 15 to 17 grand by the time they were landed and processed and everything else. And he found uh, nothing but success. But if somebody doesn't go through all the steps or they fall on, on one of the steps, he said something about he loses some of that that fund he loses some of that deposit that he's already created for that person he can't just have another person jump into that slot and just carry on so just explain to me yeah so it's impossible
1: to get into quoting f-
0: because every case is different
1: so it, so basically the fees are based on how much how much work and what the challenge is with that you know you may have found an, an amazing employee and then you want to that you want a potential employee that you want to hire and then comes on board and then it turns out there's a medical inadmissibility inadmissibility issue or there's some criminality there and that makes so it it sets off all these different processes. It's also you know comes down to how organized the candidate may be or the employer is in the case and you know if an employer wants to hire hire a foreign national they let's say it's a labor market opinion. um, There's a bunch of stuff that they need to provide and um, so every case is unique. um, So it's really difficult to. To, uh, I mean, I can give you like a, a general range of uh, fees for labor market opinions, between two and $4,000 to get permission to bring somebody in, and mm-hmm. then the worker has their fees. And, that, and then there's government fees on top of that. For a, an LMIA, it's $1,000. So the non-refundable thing is that when anyone engages with an immigration consultant, we make no promises about success. I, 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 you'll never hear me say, hire me and I'll get you your permit. It doesn't work that way, Right. So it is a so you're hiring me to provide the best uh, both service, strategy, and focus to get you to the uh, to the hoped outcome. Um, but if that doesn't happen, you've paid the fees, then you're done. On the LMIA side, if you, if I bring an employee employee and it doesn't work out and. And uh, I want to bring someone else in. Well, that, that someone else needs a work permit, needs to go through a process, and there's government fees involved with that. It's $150 for a work permit. It's not a huge part. But that, that's probably what he's relating to, the fact that I work with someone. And if, if I need to uh, uh, you know, get an LMIA for a different position or something changes, then there's there could be some impact at the end there as well.
0: So are you busy like, are you busy? And because I would imagine this marketplace, this would be the the perfect storm for you, which is we we don't have enough people. You can get me someone, yes, potentially. Yeah. Uh, so, are you like flat out busy, or are you still able to work on your tennis game? Uh, <laughs> yes, my tennis game <laughs> needs some work
1: right now. Uh, the uh, the the reality is, yeah, I'm as busy as I want to be in the in the sense that I. I turn work down if it doesn't. If I don't feel it's an appropriate fit for me, either both by area of expertise or it's something. You know, I've had I've had potential clients where the story changes three times in forty minutes, and mm. I, I, you know that's not going to be good for that process itself. So yeah, it's busy, and it's busy because um, employers, much like they they saw in two thousand seven eight, are looking for answers and want to know how they can actually pull this off. So a lot of conversations with uh, small businesses here. Um, I've had certainly a lot of conversations around everything from citizenship applications to people that are here and want to stay, work permits running out, study permits. Um, So it's been really interesting. I don't really market to any great extent. I've got a website, workincanada.net, and um, I do get uh, certainly some flow off the website as well, but uh, it's mostly word of mouth for me in terms of uh, um, people that have either do a little Googling, have a little connection with me. It's people that have either used me, that you know, like you you obviously know from the from your your marketing model, the best customer is the one that comes back the second, third, fourth, and fifth mm-hmm. time. And it's the same thing in immigration. You do somebody um proud with the work you've done, and then they have someone that they know that wants to do something. And I'm working on a labor market impact assessment right now for an employer, and it's basically a former client of mine that that Mm. encouraged him to, to look at doing this. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, it is interesting how it comes in. So I think that, um, the, I'm sure all of the RCICs out there, the immigration consultants are, are busy Uh, and it's a interesting time because again, Canada is so desirable as a country.
0: Um, even with the, the federal government really Okay. (laughs)
1: Sorry. I, I won't <laughs> comment on that. Uh, but no, aside from it, you look at all the world rankings were always number one or number two. And there's another two that were out last week. Same thing. Um, they see the news that Canada has a million job openings based on the last oh. un- uh, unemployment report. Yeah. Um, and this is a pretty desirable place to come. So as a result of that, um, a lot
0: of people are looking for options. So there's uh, some musical questions I want to ask, but I'm, I'll, I'll get into those a little bit because uh, another question, and this goes into the when. Um, so somebody's looking today. They posted on Indeed or wherever, and they can't seem to get any kind of traction. They want to move ahead. Um, how quickly could someone actually land on Canadian soil, start working like within a year Six months, like I, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, great question,
1: and it really depends on the position, the skill level, and uh, where the person might be coming from. So, uh, so generally speaking, if we if we look at the LMI temporary foreign worker path, and it's uh, we have low wage and high wage. So, if you're in there as a bare minimum, you have to advertise for thirty days on a number of job sites. Uh, then you submit your uh, report, which outlines how many people. Well, then you have to actually interview the people that qualified. You have to complete that work, then you do your submit an employment report and and the actual application and then Canada adjudicates it. So you're probably realistically speaking, if you did everything, boom, 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 you're realistically looking at having a decision from the government in about two months time, uh, from the time you start the process. So then once you've made the decision, you then have the issue of getting your worker here. Mm -hmm. And depending on where they come from, that can add time. So for example, if you're from a non-visa country where you don't need a visa to enter Canada, You could theoretically take your labor market opinion, and you could show up at the border uh, and ask them to process it. They may or they may not. CBSA has the discretion. And given, you can imagine, with some of the border challenges lately, uh, Mm. they have been saying, we don't have time for this. Um, I had a client who went to Buffalo, actually, to get her... Uh, came in from the UK, they wouldn't process it at Pearson. They said, no, we haven't got time for this, And uh, but we'll let you in as a visitor for six months. Well, she wants to work. She has a permit. She wants to work. And she had already applied from the UK, but got a little impatient, decided she'd come and try it at the border. Um, so she did that, and um, she ended up going to Buffalo, uh, to the Fort Erie Buffalo border, where they they will process work permits on Thursday afternoons. So they actually designate an afternoon for people that are either going to flagpole, meaning that I need to leave Canada to get a new permit uh, issued. And she would go from, uh, from a visitor with visitor status to actually now having a work permit. Um, so there's different ways. So some people will take the risk and come really quickly. Um, a lot of it comes down to wait times. So if you're in the UK right now, the processing for work permits about 12 weeks. Mm. If you're in, um, I just looked at one from uh, Peru. I think it was that was 139 days. Okay, so that's that's a, a little bit more time. So so that that will add that. But if you if you're from uh, you know that visa country, non visa country where you don't need a visa, you just simply hop a, get on a plane and come across the border and hope they give you a work permit.
0: So a lot of these uh, families that and and we had. Um, a nanny years ago, Filipino nanny, lovely woman, uh, left her family to come work in Canada, mm-hmm. and she would send a lot of her money back to her family. And it wasn't until later where her family and her her child, who I think she left uh, after three months after giving birth, you know, saw a, a grown almost a grown infant by the time they were all able to come over, and uh, it was just a It was a great story, though. And she talked about in in, uh, the Philippines just how hard it is to work. There's actually a height requirement and you have to have a certain education requirement. She goes, to get a job and it doesn't pay very well is really quite tough. And she goes, in Canada, our our lives have generally, like, they've just gotten so much better. They now own a house, you know, and now they've got multiple families working together and, and really building something. And it's got to be amazing from your standpoint of seeing, again, these success stories of coming from virtually nothing, ripping families apart to really enjoying a future together. Like, I mean, I I, I kind of get goosebumps of thinking how much they can be given if if the right opportunity presents itself.
1: Well, and I think the, uh, if you look at the agricultural sector um, in, in particular, we have had something called the SOP program, the seasonal agri-work program, which is been operational for for a long, long time, where pre- predominantly Mexican, but also Jamaicans that come to work and on our farms and vineyards, and uh, half their wages get sent home automatically, and they're they're supporting families. and And um, you've got you've got workers here that've been here for ten years. They've come for ten solid years, and and they can make more in their three months three to four months that they're here than they they can in two years in in Mexico. And so they're providing for those families, making a difference. Now, there have been, you know, Canada, there's been some criticism certainly from, um, uh, from some communities that we, like, we should be welcoming these people and giving them a chance to stay here. And, um, you know, the, uh, the sort of the TR to PR route, where you're going from temporary residence to permanent residence, that we're, we should be making that an opportunity. Um, that's been a big part of government discussion debate for a long time. Um, it, it it hasn't happened. I think, as you've pointed out, the program is designed for that individual to go back home. And, you know, a, a number of reasons why people get rejected for study permits Um, not so much for work permits. It's like when you apply for an immigration process, I'm going to come to study in Canada. The expectation is when you finish studying, you're going home. So we talk about ties to your home country as being a big part. Um, And so you'll often see a rejection. Um, I don't believe you have adequate ties to your home country, meaning I don't think you're going to go back to Canada. Well, when you've got a family and children and you're trying to earn income and some of it's being garnished right away and sent back, that's that's significant, so it is it is an it's an impactful part of of improving the quality of life of those folks there, and in many cases it keeps us well fed and well well drunk, drink one or the other. So it's an important it's certainly an, an important part of uh, of the ag economy and other sectors as well.
0: Okay, so I get to just turn the page here a little bit, musical background. Um, and do you have a lot of gigs? Are you taking gigs or? Cause of course, uh, as many of you know, he is the Sinatra guy, I guess you could say. Um, is this like, are you, are you still doing it? Are you, are you still performing? Yeah, or? absolutely.
1: And I think, um, COVID uh, certainly was interesting with that. Um, number, the number of cancellations of uh, actually that we have a wedding that, uh, my group's called fine tuned and I've got, uh, five amazing backing musicians and, uh, um, I'm proud to say, range in age from 41 to 82, and so we had our, uh, we were booked for a wedding at Predator Ridge for in 2019. Mm-hmm. The wedding was to be in this in. Uh, 2020 Mm. Uh, we booked it in january 2019 and it has been booked rebooked rebooked and rebooked now four times and so i finally had a chat with the with the bride to be that this is it like one more (laughs) one more kick at this and we gotta pull (laughs) the pin um and so i go back typically she phones me i go back to my band and i go guys are you available in june of 2023 now to do this gig and uh and the response i typically get from one of my band members is yeah, for sure. If I'm alive, I mean that's i mean, it's being very practical. But it seems like this has gone on forever. So uh, we we certainly were impacted with that. We've uh, we've done you know we were doing probably 10 to 12 gigs a year prior to COVID. we we did uh, I think we did three last year. We've did, we've done two this year so far. Um, hopefully, we're going to be more public in the fall and get out and start doing working some of the small restaurants and clubs around town. They're, it's just fun. It's a great release, and uh, they're the nicest bunch of guys to hang out with and and we'll, I, we have a, an amazing woman uh lucy benwell who plays clarinet sax and everything else uh, woodwind related
0: <laughs> i and and i i'm so glad uh i saw you today i i was you know on one of those stupid feeds and it gave me a, a story that somebody told about uh, sinatra and it was in the latter part of his career and he'd come on and and was sang the first two songs and can't remember what they were, but he rolled into the next number and and he was kind of mumbling and he was forgetting the words and, and, uh, and the guy telling the story was an excellent storyteller. I won't do it justice, but he said he, he, the, the symphony was down in the pit and they couldn't see what was happening. So they're just continuing to play and there's these long stretches of gap and, and uh, it was getting really awkward. And finally one guy stood up in the crowd and started clapping and say we love you Frank it doesn't matter it we just we just love you and then the whole crowd got up and started to plow like applaud and and cheer and and uh, Frank you know the eventually the the symphony quietened down and everyone he says everyone was sitting backstage going this is it this is the the end of a legacy and uh, he looked at the orchestra and and said one two three and hit it again sang and he said he had so much energy and so much vibrancy and he he went on for another five years or something like they said it was just a pivotal moment and he was there for that and he couldn't believe it was that one guy standing up and just giving him the love and it was just such a great moment
1: he, um, I saw him on his 77th birthday in Vegas at the uh, Desert Inn in a small showroom with maybe 600 people, and it was all full of celebrities. It was really super cool night and 50-piece orchestra. And f- his son, Frank Jr., was conducting at the time. And uh, and my wife kept saying, you don't, you're going to destroy your image of your hero. He's going to be just... Because there were slots. He, he really struggled. Uh, pretty much from 89 on, he really struggled. And mm-hmm. there's uh, some discussion that his wife, Barbara, would basically get him Pilled up and on stage, it's any that he didn't. He he wasn't all that clear in the head when he was on stage because of the medication he was on. And but um, I said, no, I got to see him anyway. Got got to. I don't care. He could he could sit there like a lump for an hour. At least I said I've seen him and I'm gonna hear some nice music. So he. Um, Came on, and uh, he had a teleprompter that he was using, but his his eyes weren't great either. And uh, so the tele, the tele, you could see the, you know he would look at it, particularly if he was sitting down, he'd have a, a peek at it, uh, and he'd he'd screw up a word every now and then. Um, so on that particular night, he introduced a song, did it, and then introduced the exact same song again. <laughs> but nobody said a word. Yeah, yeah. Was not a sound? No, no. <laughs> um, and uh, his son, you know, he introduced his son. He goes, "This is Frank Junior, my son." Um, his mom told, give the bum a job. You know, <laughs> that, and Frank Jr.'s looking at her like, what? <laughs> yeah. um, momentarily, not really realizing where he was. And so Frank Jr. was there to keep him on on balance and, and keep him sort of focused if, if there were any issues. He got lost in one or two. songs. who cares? It was spectacular. And he sounded great, um, just... Tore the roof off the place, and it was just an amazing, amazing night. I was just buzzing for a couple of days after, and part of it seeing the legend of who he is. Um, but you know, the uh, there are so many stories you can tell about the guy. But you know, and I think there's people that were very protective of him as he got older, and that that's not how you want to be remembered for this sort of befuddled guy slumped over in a chair on a stage. But um, he, um, yeah, he, uh, his. I think his last concert, well, I call it, it was a. He did five songs at his charity golf tournament in Palm Springs in, in 1995, and uh, it was pretty rough. Oh
0: it yeah. It's pretty rough, and yeah.
1: uh, they had a salute to him for his uh, 80th birthday, and uh, he, uh, he literally, like they kind of he sat in around. He seemed to be enjoying himself that night and uh one of these horrible George Schlatter produced TV specials that uh, <laughs> the family made all the money off of. They're, get him out there, get the end. <laughs> so he uh anyway, he that he seemed to enjoy the show and then they hauled him on at the end with everybody to to sing uh, New York New York and uh and they kind of passed the mic right at the end for the big note hold and he held this amazing note, you know, and he you know he was 80. So I mean, he was he was he was pretty incredible to watch. I think people that saw him earlier in life uh, that was the only time I saw him live. Um, yeah, just talked about the. My mother went to Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto in 1976, I think, to see him. And and of course, being a teenager, we made fun of him. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, my mother was just on. She was just a excitable ball for five days, and, <laughs> and finally the show comes. And the gardens is probably the worst place on earth you could ever acoustic. Yeah, 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 really, really poor. it didn't matter. I mean, he was he was. Yeah, she said that was one of the greatest days of my life, and so I mean I, I wish I had seen him in his in his prime. And some would argue that even in 1976 he was not in his prime. Anything post retirement, post 1971, um, but he was a uh, one of a kind of perf- uh, performer. And it's and there's still like, there's still you know finding stuff of his like unreleased. There's not a lot left. Um, and there's tons of bootlegs that are, have, but, um, but every day, yeah, the family has a massive vault of his stuff. Um, and they let stuff trickle out every now and then, but, uh, yeah, incredible. Uh,
0: so quick question. I think I know the answer, but I want to check uh, concert you've been to previously. Uh, and, and, and again, the performer might've passed on and a concert, you'd love to go to, uh, present day. So, and, and and again, if they can happen in Kelowna great, but it doesn't have to be around Kelowna, but you're a musical guy. So what what did you see that that really touched your soul? And I think I know the answer. <laughs> and uh and the one that's coming up that you'd love to see in maybe City Park or wherever. Yeah. So
1: I'm gonna keep myself more current and I'll tell a different story about it. Music that touched my soul. So, uh, fortunate to see uh, an evening with Silk Sonic uh, in Vegas last uh, March. Um, so, Bruno Mars, Anderson Pack. Wow. Unbelievable show, just from start to finish. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a big Bruno fan. Saw him in Vegas just before COVID, actually. And that was an amazing show, but this was just off the charts, the two of them. It was just so much fun. You know, again, just a happy feeling. And again, uh, there was a family in front of us that had been 13, 13 members of a family. And these seats were not cheap and i'm doing the wow um and uh they were from babies to age 70 in that in, in that row in front of us and they're all up dancing and high-fiving it was just an amazing evening uh those guys are off the charts with their talent the vocal skills abilities just incredible so that probably for me when i think is you know Nineteen ninety-two was quite a long time ago, so I think that's probably the that sticks with me now as being probably just one of the best things I've
0: ever seen. Uh, last few moments of the the big show here, and I'd love to find out your your thoughts on municipal action coming up. Uh, issues in your mind that that really need to be addressed or to be top priority of each each council has, I would say a, a you know, a direction, a, a thought process and they will be known for it. But what do you think are some of the bigger issues that the, and I'm not saying no one's not going to be uh, taking their seat again or incumbents are going to be reelected, but is there uh, issues that you find are, are really cutting edge and, and we really need to address them going forward? Well,
1: I think there, the the challenge with the question is that there are, I'll give you a bunch, but the problem is that most of them aren't city responsibilities and mm-hmm. that's the frustrating part, right? So the, uh, the, degree and level of street crime, uh, low-level bike theft, which is just sort of laughed off. Um, you know, the why wouldn't you steal a bike? Because if I catch you with the bike, no one's nothing's going to really be done to the person that's stolen, but we don't True. have resources to do that, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's a huge issue uh, without question. And uh, the challenge around mental illness on our streets and homelessness and how we deal with that. Um, they are ultimately end up in the municipality's lap. But from a, a jurisdictional perspective, we don't have a whole heck of a lot of control over it. So I think it—I uh, think that, that there'll be a lot of discussion from all candidates running for all positions about how we need to do this better. And um, what I always like about elections is it gives you a chance to press people for actual answers. So when you say that you... Uh, we've got to do something about all this petty theft and criminality in Kelowna. Um, okay, well, what, are, what specific action are you going to take that will have an impact on that? So, um, you know, politicians say, "Well, we need to be better organized." And th- well, that's not really an answer, right? So, you know, th- that's that's what I kind of look for: um, affordable housing. I think we talked a little bit earlier about just in terms of um, what can the city do to incent um, it to happen. So, is that a zoning? Bonus, is that, does that come down to, uh, you know, the city created a number of zones where we provided incentives for developers to build uh, affordable housing. Is it more of that? Do those policies work? I I don't know. I haven't looked at whether the city's analyzed that or not. But um, those are two big issues. I think what people look for with a city is they want their quality of life maintained. They want to make sure that they feel safe, that they have water and sewer, that their parks are clean and safe. And... um, you know and their garbage collected I mean there's a course there's a core city services I think we as a city can do better than that and have and have done better than that um we've had visitors in all summer from all across Canada and the mm-hmm. comment your parks are unbelievable like that's the comment really? really yeah okay just in terms of how well kept they are and and uh, what an amazing city that you live in and, and it's always great when you have other people say that um so i think that there's like trying to both uh, maintain the quality of life here and and improve it um is an important element there are like every city we're we're grappling with these issues um like you could literally look at a blueprint for the top 30 cities in canada what are your number your top three issues and you're likely going to find very similar things in there and um so how well do we lobby federal and provincial government for resources um how effective are we at getting our voice out there I know the mayor was involved with uh, Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria, in terms mm-hmm. of this trying to shed some light from the big city mayors in British Columbia on this uh, you know, low-level crim- criminality issue. Um, and I think that I want our city government to be innovative. So, what are you as a as a council person? Or a mayor going to do to help innovate the city and allow for that innovation to spread? Take some risks as a city. We may not win them all, but that's what innovation is based on. You're going to you're going to screw up a few times. Um, different processes of how we how we purchase services and goods, and look at how we uh, how we partner. And part of the work I did when prior to leaving was setting up this partnership office. And and uh, the city has a, an intake process now. If you're out there, in general public, and you've got an idea but you want to do something differently with the city, there's a place you can upload your your request it gets dealt with in a in a guaranteed time frame and um maybe something will come of that and i know the city's actively looking at some interesting partnerships now so that i think is what i would hope would continue it um but um yeah this is a this city's pretty pretty amazing place to be and you and i are we're not quite lifers here but um we've been here a long time and uh um it's just amazing to see what the city's
0: become uh Gotta say, as I knew it would be very enjoyable time, Mr. Robert Fine. Um, and and again, let's give us the give us the two websites if uh, people wanted to, I guess uh, explore after doing some due diligence for the immigration side. What would their your website uh, be?
1: WorkinCanada.net.
0: Okay. And uh, music. Robertfine dot com. Uh, such a pleasure. Love you on a tighter rotation than, uh, you know, once every few months. So, uh, uh, thanks again for the time. Well, you're it. I have done no media since I, since
1: I disappeared (laughs) from the So you're it. So consider a job well done. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.